Hello my lovelies, welcome to Prehistory with Danielle. I am flying solo today, but before we get started, this is episode 13, lucky number, and for all those who have listened and shared the podcast on Google, Spotify, Apple, wherever, I really, really appreciate your support so much. Sharing is the best way you can give us support right now in these early stages of the podcast. Season 1 will end on episode 15, then we're going to take a break for about a month or two. I will give an official date by either the next episode or the last episode. We'll use that time to recharge, do more research, reflect on what's gone well or not so well. So I know the format of the podcast changed quite a bit in just these early stages, so I'd like to ask you, or listeners, to let us know what you think. Send us an email at prehistorypodcasts at gmail.com. So that's P-R-E-E, podcast at gmail.com. And let us know three things. What do you like about the show? Did you prefer when the episodes were shorter or longer? Do you prefer the ones on lesser-known historical figures and events? That's kind of my goal here, to do maybe lesser-known people more than the more popular known ones. Or do you want to know more about the popular ones? Do you want more folk tales and dopey stories? Do you have any questions for us? So this is number two to let us know. If we get enough questions, then maybe we'll do a Q&A section or an episode answering those questions before we take the break. And finally, if you have a suggestion or topic you'd like us to cover, then throw it our way at that same email address. If you're not as comfortable writing, then take a voice note with your phone and you can email that to us too. Now, on to the episode. Let's get started. Born in Trinidad, Port of Spain on June 11, 1920, Hazel's father, Thomas Scott, was a West African scholar and college professor from England. Her mother, Alma Long Scott, was a classical pianist from a well-to-do local family. Hazel's father encouraged her love of learning, and it was clear Alma saw and invested in her daughter's talents. Musical talents, that is. Hazel was so talented, in fact, that she made her professional piano debut at the age of three in Trinidad. In 1924, Hazel's parents separated and her mother and grandmother migrated with her to the U.S. and settled in Harlem, New York. When she was eight, Alma took Hazel to audition at the Juilliard School of Music. She was awarded a six-year scholarship This would be the first time in history that a student under the age of 16 was admitted into the school. In fact, a professor was so impressed with Hazel that she studied as his private student. He called her a genius. When the depression hit and money became scarce, Alma taught herself jazz and the saxophone and played in all-women bands who were popular at the time. Alma taught herself jazz and the saxophone and played in all-women bands which were popular at the time. Through her mother's connection, 
Hazel was able to meet and learn from musical greats like Art Tatum, Lester Young, and Fats Waller. By the time Hazel was 13, she was a regular performer in her mother's own jazz band, Alma Long Scott American Creolians. <laughs> That's quite a name. It rolls right off the tongue. Actually, it sounds cool. While in high school, Hazel made her individual stage debut at the popular Roseland Ballroom in New York City. At 18, Hazel hosted her own radio show and played complicated classical numbers. This girl is on a roll. The Cafe Society was the first dinner club in America to be racially integrated. Black and white customers were treated equally there, unlike many other establishments like the Cotton Club, who featured black performers but did not patronize black customers. You stay over there, we'll stay over here. Billie Holiday's haunting and legendary debut of Strange Fruit on Cafe Society's opening night helped the club skyrocket in popularity. When Holiday had to cut her engagement short, she requested that Hazel Scott be her replacement. Hazel became the darling of the Cafe Society, earning a 2000 a week salary. Man, 2000 a week is good now, is really good back then. She became famous for jazzing up classical music and putting a classical spin on popular tunes. Despite some criticism of her playing in quotes niggery boogie woogie and you can guess what kind of people had that opinion, she was a very successful entertainer. Hazel performed in Broadway musicals and in the 1940s not only released her first album, Swinging the Classics, she was featured in five major Hollywood films. Hazel refused to play the typical role reserved for African Americans, domestic servants, incompetent buffoons, or villains. For black women, it was narrowed even further to mommies, maids, like Hattie McDaniel in Gone with the Wind, or prostitutes. Hazel was not having it. If a film wanted to hire her, then she would play as herself, or not at all. She dressed beautifully and carried herself with as much dignity in the scenes as she did in real life. Usually, her parts would be removed by southern centers to avoid offending white audiences. The NAACP had been voicing similar protests to the movie studios to create more realistic Negro characters and to broaden the roles African Americans were given. The earliest signs of Hazel's troubles began when she went on strike during a production of the 1943 musical The Heat's On. There's a part of the film where black women were seeing their sweethearts off to war and Hazel was leading the cast in a musical and dance number. The actresses were expected to wear grubby aprons. Hazel protested that no black woman would wear a dirty apron when seeing their men off to war. She refused to play in the scene and had a standoff with the director for three days until he gave in. The actresses were given clean floral dresses to wear. Hazel had won the battle. But when the executives heard how much money her strike had caused the studio, she was blacklisted from working on a film ever again, at least in Hollywood. It would be another 13 years until she landed a role in a French film. Hazel returned to New York and her musical career. 
She stipulated in her contract that she would not play in front of segregated audiences, even if it meant limiting where she could work or if it meant walking out on a gig. And maybe you guessed from that movie scene that this was happening during World War II. Hazel played for soldiers during the war, but after the war ended, she and other black artists, such as renowned singer Marian Anderson, were barred by a nonprofit organization, the Daughters of the American Revolution, from using the DAR Constitution Hall for concerts. You see, black artists attracted white and black crowds, and the DAR were getting complaints from some customers about the mixed seating. First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt resigned from the DAR with this lovely letter. I am afraid I have never been a very useful member of the Daughters of the American Revolution, so I know it will make very little difference to you whether I resign or whether I continue to be a member of your organization. However, I am in complete disagreement with the attitude taken in refusing Constitution Hall to a great artist. You have set an example which seems to me unfortunate and I feel obliged to send in to you my resignation. You had an opportunity to lead in an enlightened way and it seems to me that your organization has failed. I realize that many people will not agree with me, but feeling as I do, this seems to me the only proper procedure to follow. Yes, First Lady, tell them off. You know, in the nice, polite, old-fashioned way. <laughs> now, just a little break from Hazel's professional life to introduce someone very important to her personal life, her husband. In 1945, Hazel married Adam Clayton Powell, a Baptist preacher and active civil rights leader, and the first black congressional representative from New York. Powell already had a wife when he and Hazel met. They had an affair, and just a few days after his divorce, they married. It was all a bit of a scandal, and the media loved it. They couldn't get enough of the controversial and yet respected power couple. Anyway, when Eleanor Roosevelt's successor, First Lady Bess Truman, was invited to a tea party with the Daughters of the American Revolution, Congressman Powell wrote her a letter asking her to turn down the invite. He brought up Eleanor Roosevelt's willingness to stand up for racial equality and asked her to also denounce the DAR organization for their ban on black artists like his wife. It was the American thing to do. The First Lady basically said that while she deplored artists being denied their talents due to racial prejudice, this beef with the DRA has nothing to do with me, and I'm not putting my foot in it. President Truman backed up his wife in another letter and pointed out that they just won a war against countries who are all about racial prejudice, so there was no way they could be un-American. Other than those initial replies, the Trumans ignored Mr. Powell, and the First Lady attended the tea anyway. Mr. Powell then called Mrs. Truman the last lady of the nation. Mrs. Truman snapped back by calling him that damn n-word preacher, and the president banned Powell from attending the White House for any future functions. Hazel and her husband were not done standing up for themselves. In 1949, while doing a concert tour through the West Coast, Hazel was denied service by restaurant owners in Spokane, Washington State. Hazel and her husband filed the first federal lawsuit against racial discrimination in that region. 
Although the congressman had not been traveling with his wife at the time, he was listed as a plaintiff, and that made the lawsuit more prominent in the news. During the trial, the restaurant owners denied refusing Hazel's service because of her race, and their defense attorneys portrayed Hazel Scott as a rude and loud customer and claimed that it was because of her abusive behavior. Their defense attorneys portrayed Hazel Scott as a rude and loud customer and claimed that it was because of her abusive behavior that they didn't serve her. Hazel wasn't able to attend the trial in person, but she sent her testimony in writing. It was clear from her written statement that she was a reasonable person who had been treated unfairly. She described a different interaction at the restaurant. Her attorney made her sympathetic to the jurors and even called a rebuttal witness to back up Hazel's account of the whole affair. The witness said he thought Scott conducted herself in a ladylike manner and did not shout or tap people on the shoulder, use profanity, or tear into the waitress when she was refused service, which is what the restaurant owners claimed happened. The jury decided for Hazel, concluding that she had been denied service because she was a Negro and was awarded $50,000 in damages. Shortly after the trial, the restaurant owners closed their business and opened a taxi service. I wonder if they took on any black passengers. The lawsuit set a legal precedent in the state and in a few years inspired statewide civil rights organizations to pressure state legislators to enact a law that ensured the rights of all people to equal treatments at places of public accommodation. Hazel's career continued to soar. In 1950, the Dumont Television Network offered Hazel the opportunity to star in her own television show. Entertainment paper Variety called her personality dignified and yet relaxed and versatile as she wowed white and black audiences with jazzy renditions. However, just a month after this, it would all come crashing down. A group of former FBI agents accused a list of celebrities, including Scott, of being communists or communist sympathizers. The list was published by a right-wing journal called The Red Channel. Her husband was also suspected of having ties to communist front organizations. Sponsors began to withdraw their support from her show. It didn't matter that it wasn't true. The accusations were enough, and just participating in any civil or social activism was enough for the communist paranoid public to start looking at you funny. The Cold War was on, and the federal government became more repressive towards progressive black leaders and any others deemed as subversive. Hazel felt she had no choice but to publicly declare an anti-communist position since she since ignoring the lies just caused it to fester among the public. Hazel testified before the House of Un-American Activities Committee in an attempt to salvage her reputation. She unequivocally denied having any association with communist or communism as an ideal, but also challenged the practice of blacklisting suspected communists as accusations were enough to ruin someone's livelihood. Her speech was praised by many African Americans and colleagues in the entertainment industry. But it was all for nothing, or maybe by appearing before the committee she had played into the Streisand effect as her reputation was just damaged and appearing before the committee made her seem even more suspicious. She went from being 
in ridiculously high demand to having offers dried up. She wasn't able to get new sponsors and the network cancelled her show a week after her testimony. Her marriage is something else that fell apart. After an eight year separation, Hazel and Paul divorced in 1960. Hazel traveled abroad in 1962 and lived in Switzerland and France with her son, Adam Clayton Powell III. Her musical career and popularity picked up back steam in Europe. She did pull back from social and political controversy after the hearings though. It would take quite a number of years before she felt comfortable enough to join a march in 1963 with other black expatriates on the US Embassy in Paris and supported MLK's march on Washington. Hazel returned to the US in 1967 but by then, her fame had faded and her style of music was no longer the hot genre. She played in some small clubs and made a few recordings for some fans. But I have to wonder if it felt quiet compared to her peak just 20 years ago. She moved to New York to be close to her son and grandchildren. Just a few months after her last performance, Hazel died of pancreatic cancer in 1981 at only 61 years old. Even though it hadn't lasted, she had elevated how African Americans were portrayed in the media. Black Americans were able to see themselves on the big and small screen as successful, even powerful people, instead of as servants and well-meaning idiots. She was the first African American woman to host a television show before the likes of the great Oprah, paving the way for others to come.